Cineboys to Cinemen, episode 26. 26. 26. Good to be back, and in the same room as each other. I know, yeah, yeah, back to it. In stroking distance. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really Uh, pleased about that, actually. (laughs) Yes, likewise. Mm. I hope you're well, uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. This week, uh, the first of our director deep dive episodes. Mm. Our original plan was to, I mean, me, myself and Ben have, have chosen four directors each. Yeah. Uh, and then we were going to let you, the adoring listener, uh, pick the other four, maybe. Yeah. And then we'd do like a, a wheel thing and then that director would come up. Um, and the idea was we do these episodes like once every few weeks, should there be like a dry run in the cinema or we have like a certain hankering to talk about a certain filmmaker. Yeah. But the news this week sort of decided it for us. Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, yeah it, it um, was quite yeah, quite sad news. Yeah, um, I was about to say bittersweet. It's not sweet at all. It's just <laughs> it's just, it's always nasty when when a film director who has made a series of films that are loved by both of us passes away. It's always yeah, it's always slightly shocking. Yeah, and um, yeah, so it was difficult not to not to think about him this week. So yeah, yeah, good, exactly. good to talk about his his movies. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, he was 87, so he had a long life. I yeah, guess. yeah. But uh, no, you're right. I think filmmakers such as this has, you know, had such an impact on us, and, and I'm sure many people mm. can't help but revisit those films and then want to talk about those films. Yeah, yeah. I guess without sounding sort of too morbid, that's one of the few positives about yeah. dying is that maybe more people will sort of. Oh, yeah, films. yeah. I hope so, because it certainly sort of provoked me into rewatching one of his classics. Oh, so, yeah. Um, the filmmaker in question, of course, is William Friedkin. Yes. Uh, someone that... I was sort of reflecting on this a little bit. I think in the context of, you know, when he started making... You know, when he started working, should I say. You know, he was part of that sort of new Hollywood era. Yeah. Uh, sort of late 60s, early 70s. You know, you, you sort of... Martin Scorsese's, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's, etc. And when you think about him in that context, he sort of gets brushed under the rug a little bit. Yeah, yeah, completely. Considering he's made some absolute classics, yeah, he's probably made the same amount of absolute classics that Coppola has, arguably. Mm. Would you say? And I yet, Coppola is a lot more kind of still, even after all these years, he's still kind of put on this pedestal mm. with like Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, Lucas, <laughs> maybe not Lucas. Uh, <laughs> sorry, George. Um, <laughs> but it's odd that yeah, um, uh, he's he's often overlooked. Yeah, and uh, I don't know whether that's because of controversy surrounding yeah. the Exorcist, but then you know, like Apocalypse Now wasn't around, you know, without it, it's controversy as well. So I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with consistency. I, yeah, you know, like we were sort of saying before, we were trying to unpick why that was. But I mean, if you think about Scorsese, particularly, you know, you had like a slew of hits, mm. um, and I think after Freakins made the Exorcist. That was after French Connection, wasn't it? The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah, seventy-three. Um, I think <laughs> should know that really. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, it's um, he had a few duds, and mm. you know, and even like Sorcerer, which is you know now in in the modern lens considered a you know a great yeah. film, yeah. Um, tanked for obvious reasons, which we'll get into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then again, he had a few misses, and then didn't really find his feet again till To Live and Die in L.A. Mm. And then, of course, you know, as his career went on, he had a few gems. But, you know, there's some sort of diamonds in the rough in his career. Yeah. And I think because of that lack of consistency, maybe that is why he isn't sort of put in the same pantheon as people like Scorsese. Or perhaps isn't as sort of like well-known would probably mm. be the better way. Because I think for, you know, film fans, he definitely is well-known. Yeah. But even for me, 
I sort of when I think about that era, his name doesn't really come up for me, and I think that's you know a bit of a problem considering that he made you know one of the sort of defining films in the horror genre and one yeah. of the defining films in the cop or buddy cop or police procedural dramas. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting that in that regard. Oh, completely. Yeah, we'll go. I think we'll talk about this more in the in the in the meat of the discussion. I've got one or two ideas about why that might be, but um, yeah. Yeah, shall Good we do stuff. it? Let's do it. Questing the cinematic mm, William Friedkin, then. Um, <laughs> as you sort of alluded to, or sort of directly addressed in the opening, you know, um, a key figure in um, uh, sort of the new age of Hollywood. Yeah. Even yeah. if he's not quite as popular as the others, he <clears throat> certainly, you know, it should be and absolutely is, mm. um, given the success of. Um, French Connection and The Exorcist, um, which helped usher in this yeah. sort of, you know new period of cinema. We've talked about it so quite a lot, so I'm not going to talk about that a bit too much. But I think what's interesting about him in particular is that, in like Robert Altman, who's another filmmaker of, of that ilk, you know, he cut his teeth working in sort of television. So Freakin sort of cut his teeth in television, uh, working his way up through through the television industry, and then eventually making documentaries. Okay, and I think that's a really critical thing to pick out about him in terms of his development as a, as a creative yeah. Uh, in the sense that, um, you know, that sort of documentary style and aesthetic is prevalent in all of his films. Oh yeah, completely. Yeah. And it's really sort of essential to the, the success of his best films. I yeah. think that sort of cinema verite documentary aesthetic, that uncomfortable closeness to the subject matter. Yeah. And also um, it's like the camera doesn't really know where to look. Yeah. So it, yeah. It, it's sort of, it's following the action, but slightly late um which is which can prove and definitely in the case of the French connection is like ridiculously effective and makes yeah. that chase sequence just like oh, nail bitingly so good. good. <laughs> yeah. So good. <laughs> and again we sort of I guess I sort of wanna hammer the point home. I think a lot of people said that he peaked too early with those two films. Mm, okay. Uh and I guess in, in his sort of the kind of impact they had on their respective genres and, you know, the awards that he garnered, I guess, in a way, there might be something to that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really unfair to say that, by and large, when you consider the other great films in his work, which we're going to unpack yeah. later on. You know, we mentioned To Live and Die in L.A., which I just love. Mm. You know, you've got other films, you know... Um, Kill- Killer Joe is... Uh, Killer Joe, yeah. recent one. Yeah. Got, got another one coming out soon. Has he? Yeah, he's fit, completed a film called The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Oh, okay. It's coming out in well, it's completed apparently. It's his last film, so oh, okay. um, yeah, uh, that interesting. Not that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe we should have waited until that film came out and got. got maybe we'll, we'll do that film in another episode or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But um, yeah, I'm. I, I do think he held his own. Absolutely. Uh, not inconsistently, but Coppola did the same. Like yeah. he's he's made. A, have you seen his filmography? Coppola's filmography. Yeah. Jesus Christ. There's some belters in there, but yeah, a, yeah, a lot of. A lot of experimental kind of throwaway stuff in there as well. Um, yeah, I just think most filmmakers have that, and I think it's sort of a bit unfair. I think it's I think they do it because again, like we said before, the era mm. and the filmmakers were just like repeatedly knocking films out of the park, yeah, and sort of sculpting this new identity, um, which is representative of the shift in American culture. Yeah, and obviously, Freakin achieves that in two films, and then you know he his other efforts after that either don't garner the, the sort of, you know, the, the critical acclaim or the audience 
Mm. you know, uh, appreciation for whatever reason. And I think when put up against those other other filmmakers and put it and the era, I think that's why a lot of people feel that way about him. Yeah. But again, as we've said, you know, great films. Another film called Bug as well, which I watched today. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah I've not I'm seen it. I'm looking but forward I... to talking about that because, I, you know, great. I'm looking great forward film. to hearing about it, actually, because I very nearly watched it some time ago and I never did. Um, maybe maybe now's the time. Yeah, a yeah. real hidden gem, actually. Okay. Um, yeah. I know that, sort of, that term gets thrown around quite a lot for films that are really quite well known, but yeah. um, knew nothing about it. Jan recommended it to me, actually. Oh, okay. Nice. Uh, ages ago, and I bought it on his recommendation, forgot I had it. And then <laughs> You're right, yeah. when we decided to do this episode, I was like... There Perfect. We go. Here yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, lovely. So I guess what we should do now then really is um talk about his films. Yeah. Um and we should sort of talk about them chronologically, I guess. Let's do it, yeah. So yeah. go on, Ben. Right, so yeah, French Connection. What rewatched it last night. Oh, uh looking bugger. It's so good. It's, it's just so, good. so like it was one of the first, you know, the whole good cop, bad cop thing, which became a bit of a trope. Uh, and it's like taking the piss out of in like the other guys. I, th- I get I get the feeling that's probably sort of where it not necessarily started, but sort of flourished a little bit. You've got Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman being the bad cop, and Roy Scheider being the guy who sort of pulls him back and keeps him in check and yeah. quips at him. He's just like you know he, he's sort of got like a horrendous hangover and he's like Roy Scheider's always there to be like what are you like you know that kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Really hard boiled, very sort of straight talking two guys um and they inve- are they're investigating apparently quite a well-known sort of drug syndicate which uh so heroin was produced in turkey came over to france and then hopped its way over to the united states and that's why they call it the french connection is uh because of that the the route that okay. the drugs yeah, yeah. sort of uh, took and um i think what the strengths in the French Connection, really, where they lie is is when they're following. They're just constantly following them, mm. like physically as well. Like it's there's no. I mean, obviously, this is sort of pre-internet, so all their like all, all, all their sort of detective work is just them following them. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's some really wicked sequences where um, Gene Hackman's character, what's his name, Popeye, yeah, Popeye, uh, yeah. Popeye. Popeye Doyle was just like in in relentless pursuit of these sort of drug kingpins, and one really great thing I love about it is occasionally the pursuits go nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> there's like yeah. a large, especially in the first half, is like there's a lot of them getting stuff wrong, and that just it was that kind of could appear boring. What it actually does is it's boiling the tension up, and the tension is mm. kind of and the suspense is there, but the suspense isn't generated from things you can't see. It's just, it's right there in front of you, and you're mm. like, oh, yeah. and you just you never know when they're going to be successful. So it's that kind of trial and error thing they put into the that he's sort of playing with, which I think makes it so delightful. And obviously the aforementioned chase, the classic car chase oh, God, yeah. of um, yeah him chasing a train, just like commandeers a car from a, from a guy and then bombs it down this. Seemingly endless road. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in pursuit of a train, uh, um, and it's just fantastic, like amazingly shot, pitch perfect scenario, mm. and um, and weird. I forgot it ended ends on a bit of a downer. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They, they just uh, they get reassigned, and it's like in text. It sort of reminded me of the ending to Blowout, where it's like he's lost. He's just lost. Mm. <laughs> Every that they, they they were they've caught them, but. 
they weren't successful. And that I always thought was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Um, no, yeah, love love that film. A real pleasure to to rewatch it. And what you were saying about his sort of cinema verite style, he, he apparently watched, he made some documentaries. I think he made a couple of films by that point, like lesser known yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's, he watched Z, I think, the film... Z, which has kind of employed that similar sort of documentary aesthetic, mm-hmm. and that's when he realised, oh, I can use that. I can use those skills that I developed as a documentary filmmaker in a movie, mm. and I can use it for the narrative. Like, and that's when he, because I mean, it, it's com- quite commonplace now. You've got like Children of Men. You've got uh, you know all sorts of films employ that style, but it was probably quite new at that point. Mm. And um, yeah, he, that's when he realised, like, oh, I can make a film just on the fly. A lot of it no permission was granted to film places just did it like there there was a kind of they had a bit of a tenuous relationship with the police although largely positive obviously because it's based on real people yeah yeah um yes they just didn't have the money to get permits so proper sort of 28 days later style they're like all right let's just go out and film this like Mm. from from the hip yeah (laughs) really great really great and anyone who hasn't seen it yeah implore you to watch it first half is a bit slow i think but it it works in its favour in the end because the second half is just so, like, palpable. Yeah. And you wouldn't get that tension if you hadn't seen the first act and a half that preceded it, if, you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it. Yeah, great film. I, I, I just think it's, you know, uh, arguably one of the greatest sort of New York crime films. Again, we sort of talk about that new age Hollywood thing, but, you know, I think a lot of the great filmmakers have, like, a, an urban movie. You yeah, know, yeah. Scorsese with Taxi Driver, you know, and, mm. you know, it's like these films that sort of treat these cities, these sort of, you know, typically sort of celebrations of, like, you know, uh, American sort of cultural or sort of uh, economic dominance, but yeah. now they're sort of viewed as like these sort of dark, sprawling urban labyrinths where like danger waits in every corner, <laughs> yeah. and they're gritty and dirty and yeah, imperfect and imperfect. Yeah. And even though this city is so vast and populated by so many people, there are so many secrets that are hidden in the alleyways or the dilapidated buildings and. I just think it works so well in conjunction with, as you say, Freakin's documentary style aesthetic in the sort of, you know, in, in covering this sort of like cat and mouse chase across the city and all the sort of dead ends. And you really get the sense of what like ground level police work is mm. like in that particular time. Yes. And it's about chasing leads. It's about, you know, coming down hard on, on criminals. And again, that's not, I'm not saying that from like, I enjoyed the, you know, the, <laughs> that element, but you know, it, it encapsulates that era, and it's all about the sort of how people handle authority, particularly in yeah. position, and the power of, that comes with being a police officer, and mm. how people like Popeye, who is by his very nature a sort of a bigot, yes. a racist, um, yeah. you know, utilizes that power in his ceaseless quest. You know, he's like a sort of rabid dog, isn't he? He just won't stop. Yeah, that's what he wants. He's the ultimate maverick, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's so sort of like central to police to police procedures, or indeed buddy cop movies. There's always one that tends to be a little bit more, um, you know, a bit more Foster Lucy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it just sort of works completely in this context, and sort of captures the. I don't know. There's like a grain that's shared thematically and visually, mm. and I think that's so sort of um, intrinsic 
intrinsically important to this era of of cinema in terms of these urban crime films. Yeah, and that and again, and there's something. Obviously, there's a lot of finesse to the movie, as you say. You talk about that amazing um, chase sequence, but you know, there's a lack of finesse in the cinematography, which really works in that, yeah. and it gives the film a sort of you know a, a sense of re- realism. Yeah, and you yeah. talk about this idea that they didn't shoot with permits, and you know that the obvious, you know that Gene Hackman sort of like cutting through huge crowds of people, and it, yeah, I don't know, it gives the film like a real sort of sense of life, like mm. of everyday life, oh, which contrasts. Both contrasts and complements the sort of criminal element of the film that they're sort of really desperately trying to put yeah. down. Yeah, I, there's also a lot of obviously it's a lot of sort of homage to noir as well. Like mm-hmm. the amount of shots of uh, Gene Hackman walking along a road in New York City, and it's so obviously they've just they've just got a car and a camera. It's so obvious that that's just what they've done. But I love it. Like it's a sort yeah. of shaky, imperfect chase and you can tell he's not even running that fast because he kind of had like i'm guessing with the new york traffic they can only go so fast so he's kind of like semi running it's really funny and uh it 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 adds to the charm of the film and also like paints such a wicked picture of new york city which uh, sadly doesn't really not a lot of films get made in new york city anymore because of how expensive it is Mm. um but like yeah as a snapshot of new york in 1970 71 it's like fucking so interesting yeah it's like, it's like, yeah. The, like a photograph of the whole city in, in, in a film um, and also a little bit of uh, you can see the world, uh, one of the World Trade Centers being built in one of the shots oh, as oh well. really yeah oh, yeah wow. just as on the side <laughs> I like the idea you talk about the about the noirish elements of the film because in a way because I sort of was picking up on that as well the idea that you know, there's like a leanness to the narrative there's no mm. meat on it yeah but that sort of services this idea that that the sort of drug operation that they're hunt- that they're fighting against is almost like unknowable. Its complexity is so deep, and, and yeah. its roots are so entrenched in so many people's lives from the from the top to the bottom that it gives it a sort of omnipresence, which I think, which is almost sort of talks to the futility of what they're trying to do, which yeah. is fight this, um, you know, this this sort of you know morally bankrupt drug you know syndicate. Yeah. Um, and they're never really going to win. And I no. think it speaks to that because I feel like the best noirs have that that sort of sense of futility. Yeah. To them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I really like the way that sort of you know recontextualised and brought into the sort of grit of the early nineteen seventies cinema. Yeah. And it just shows how much, even though it is like you know quite a rebellious movie, and indeed a lot of the films from that from that era were. It was like an it was like an overt projection of a lot of the sort of things that were put in place by a much more conservative film industry of the time yeah not to say they weren't great subversive films made then but they just to be clever about how they did it yeah but the filmmakers are still influenced by that and yeah. they know their influences and they're students of the craft and they implement that into their films which i really like yeah man i really i, I do agree with you there's some visual homages to noir right down to the the steam Vents, right? New York yeah, City steam yeah, vents, which yeah. is like a staple of of the noir. Like you've yeah. got to have a steam grate with steam coming out of it, and uh, in a back alley in in New York City, and on like a stakeout or something. Um, 
Spielberg was influenced by... A lot of people were influenced by French Connection, but um, one thing I remember yesterday I was watching, I was like, this reminds me of Munich quite a lot. Really? Okay. I was like, why is this a lot like Munich? And and then I was looking it up yesterday, and I was like, shit, Spielberg was influenced by French Connection when he he was making Munich. I was like, okay. What, in terms of the way he sort of captures the 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 tension between the the sort of opposing... Yeah, it reminded me of the... I can't remember Munich that well, but... There's a lot of scenes in Munich which involve the the precursor uh, sort of moment in time before something awful. There's like right, three okay, or four yeah, scenes, yeah. and they're like six, seven minutes long. These tiny and um, and it's just yeah, like I was saying earlier, it's a way of generating tension. And you're like, I genuinely don't know when this is going to go down. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and you can. It is so similar. I mean, Munich is shot a lot more gracefully. Uh, and that's not a kind of that's not me sort of shitting on the French connection like no, we say no, like no. It, it works for that film but there are just moments where the characters are just standing around looking at each other talking about something else for a mm. bit to pass the time whilst they're on whilst they're kind of investigating and just like watching someone from afar and nothing's really happening and that both those films have that trope which like just works so so well gives these films a sense of distance that works in the in the in the attempt to try and find realism, you know, yeah, like it makes yeah. it feel more real. I mean, the film, you know, cast in various sort of small supporting roles, a lot of actual police officers. Oh right, okay. Actual police officers who yes, you yeah. know, who, so you know, obviously they ne- can't necessarily act in the way that Gene Hackman can act, <laughs> but they're so comfortable in their roles because they're basically just playing what they do every day. Yeah, it gives the, a sort of earthiness, a sort of oily handed. You know what I mean? There's yeah, something yeah. so um, rich about that. And even the scene where uh, Popeye goes into that bar and gets all of the the sort of the sort of archetypal sort of ruffians to yes. sort of <laughs> put their hands on the bar or go against the wall. They're they're all played by police officers. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's this, it's a really interesting thing. And I was watching an interview with Gene Hackman himself, and he said, you know. One of the great things about the French Connection is, is that you wouldn't have known that none of those were weren't necessarily trained actors. No, no, he I wouldn't. He said that have, yeah. you know from his experience that that often isn't the case. Oh, right, okay, and yeah. I just think it serves so much. It's all freaking <laughs> is so aware that, that if he's going to employ this documentary style aesthetic, he has to have he has to be framing things that that are real. Yeah, yeah. And and obviously, there's only so much you can get away with when you're making a crime film. Obviously, yeah, you have yeah. to have some artifice. <laughs> yeah. But you know that there is a lot of realism there, which I, which I really like, and I think is essential to the impact of the film. Mm. And this, again, that sort of sense of futility. Yeah. Also, just as an aside, we're talk we're talking about the um, the chase sequence from the interview I watched today with Gene Hackman. He talked about that. Yeah. And he said that they blocked off five blocks. Yeah, okay. And did the scene over and over again. And Joe, that bit where he crashes? Yeah, so yeah. So that was actually a New York resident's car that he crashed into. Really? Yeah, <laughs> no yeah. Fun. Because they, they closed the streets. Yeah. But obviously they didn't factor in that there were cars parked and the people living in the houses near those cars would have to go to work and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, man, okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, he's like he's like screaming it down this, this stretch. Yeah. Did a lot like, of his own driving, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Uh, 70, 75 miles an hour. And he just oh, hammers into this car that just pulls out in the last minute. Oh man, that's and just, crazy! And that's in the film that made it into the cut of the movie. And I just think, again, that's you know pretty irresponsible from the from the sort of producing standpoint. But, like the fact they could um, use it though, it just speaks to just such genius idea using and the that time, cinema the era. Like, yeah, he's so good. I mean, not to sort of romanticise it too much, because I'm sure for the bloke who got his car crashed, he was furious. Yeah, yeah. but like you know, like 
you know the the idea that you know that that was just like you say that was put in the film mm. um it just feels again yeah. it's easy to romanticize this period of, of cinema because you know obviously there is a lot of things that maybe get lost in the and the abject romanticism yeah but you know it does feel like it's just you know people just moving into uncharted territory and I think Freakin's very much at the forefront of that. Yeah, no, I agreed, yeah. Hackman also said he's never been pushed so much by a director. Wow, okay, well, That's The Exorcist has some similar there's some, yeah. some, some similar, similar issues there with Linda Blair, wasn't there? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we, we're going to get to talk about that, I think, about his incendiary <laughs> directing style and his difficulty of his, mm. of his character, um, yeah. which I think a lot of people... And you see it in his interviews as well, he's... He's not afraid to give people both barrels if he thinks they're talking shit. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's no, like, you know, whereas some people might think, oh, I'll let that slide because, I don't, you know, there's no point yeah. in getting annoyed about it. He definitely doesn't do that. And, no, yeah. And I think that shows in his directing because Hackman wanted to leave the film. He didn't think he was suitable for it oh right okay given the use of, i know he wasn't um, his first choice either and no it wasn't his first choice and he, but, yeah. he went up to freaking and said look i, I don't know if i want to stick this out mm. um because he had to be really rough and brutish and obviously that scene oh yeah which we i want to touch on a little bit it's, it's going off piece a little bit but um upon doing research about the movie um i was watching a few sort of clips and it came up that the use of racist language was cut mm. from the film for the Disney, Disney Plus. Yeah, because obviously yeah, they got 20th Century. Was it Fox's? Yeah, yeah I it's think Fox, so. Isn't it? So they've got all of their and properties I, and now they're... I mean, Splash got censored in a similar fashion, but for re-nudity, not Oh, for, really? Yeah, yeah. I um, find that really interesting and it brings up that question about censorship. But I know this is a podcast about about freaking, but I just couldn't resist but get your take on that because I think it's, it's, it's a really... Obviously, it's becoming a, more and more of a hot debate in terms mm. of how we how we view past work yes uh, and you know what the sort of right strategy is in terms of how we we sort of view it in the modern lens and how that sort of changes yeah the way in which the film should be watched and how aspects of the film should be watched i wonder yeah. what your thought process was on that so weirdly although i watched it on disney plus last night it that line in particular made it in and it was i think it's a uk us thing i think might they right. may, might not have been updated yet or maybe they think uk audience can, can stomach it <laughs> i don't know mm. uh but anyway it's it is it is like quite confrontational oh, when, yeah. when that that yeah, word yeah. and I'm, sh- you know, I'm sure everyone knows what word i'm yeah, referring yeah. to is spoken it is like oh god it, it threw me off a bit mm. but it is, you know, it's really easy to for me to just say, all right, well, this is an artifact. This is from 1971. The character isn't meant to be a golden boy anyway. No. I mean, I know, like, it's, you know, use of racist language is, is really abrasive and, and, like, the the attitude towards the use of that word in p- particular has changed for the better or, or in recent years. But, but at the same time, it is like an artifact that you have to... You have to take a step back from it, and yeah, I, I do. I think it's. I think it's interesting that I, I'm quite. I, I'm sort of undecided because at the same time, I, it, it is like I said. It was. It was a tough. It was a tough thing to stomach because uh, mm. you don't. You don't hear it a lot in in films. Well, you seldom hear it in films these days. Um, in that context, anyway. Mm. Um, 
so yeah, that that's that's my two cents. <laughs> on yeah, that. I, I think you're, I think that you know, like I, I don't blame people for finding that really that scene or the use of any kind of language or that in film difficult. Mm. And I'm not saying that necessarily that our opinions are the definitive opinions. I'm sure you know there are people who have the opposite opinion to us, which is absolutely valid. Yeah, yeah. But I feel that you know it's contextual in the in the era of the movie. Yes. And I think if we talk about films as as, as you said as 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 artifacts, I think it's doubly important that we don't censor those things in those films. Completely. You yeah. Know, if if you think about the argument which is often leveled at this is going a bit off, but you know at sort of school curriculums and the way that they don't teach the darkest parts of certainly British history. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um so uh you know, well you know, I think we have to take that argument into how we how we look at sort of, you know, culture of the past in the mm. sense that, you know, this film is an extension of, of the time to which it is made. Yeah. And, you know, by censoring that, we are sort of not properly interrogating the film on its historical context. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we're making it more palatable for a new audience, which again, I'm, you know, I'm not saying necessarily is a wholly bad thing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're not you're watching that film to get a sort of a snapshot, an idea of the era and the attitudes that, that drove it. Mm. And Free Kid isn't putting that in the movie because he shares that belief system. Yeah. I mean, I don't know him, obviously. No, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know him. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think... I, I think for these sort of new era, new wave filmmakers, it'd be a bit reductive of them to use that in a way that was sort of celebratory or anything like that. Mm, yeah. And I, I just think it's, you know, I think it's really important that we continue to view films in the manner to which they were made because then they can inform us, you yeah. know, the historical context around those films. It doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that by saying that I enjoy that that's in there. <laughs> no, yeah. But the whole point is, as you say, is that Popeye is a sort of, you know he's not a nice man yeah he's not you know he is he is a he is again like he's deeply know, flawed a flawed bigoted yeah you know violent individual yeah who, in classic sort of buddy cop style is only happy when he's on the job only happy mm. when he's chasing things yeah yeah and that speaks to the nature of his character the film isn't elevating police work he doesn't make police work look great <laughs> no yeah Do you know what i mean so completely yeah i don't know i mean i can see the the opposition argument but i think it's it's something that i i think has to be kept in yeah for that for the for the for the historical context i, I think i think if it's you know if it's a content issue it's a disclaimer in that case they should just put a disclaimer yeah. on the front yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd be t totally fine with that if anything it would prepare me a little bit more for yeah it. yeah funnily enough i was at a friend's quite a long time ago and they put lady in the tramp on in the background yes okay and obviously with the siamese cats yep. right yeah 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 um, and all that sort of stuff they had like a disclaimer <laughs> at the start saying there are certain parts of this film which may be offensive to yeah. certain audiences they reflect the 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 attitudes of the time yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and i think that's if you're going to go about it anyway, to me, that's like, that seems like the best way. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I do think there is something, there is educational value in keeping those things in. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, again, that my opinion is the opinion to have on it. Yeah. Uh, and it probably would be easy for me to say that, given that I've not <laughs> had to endure anything like that. But I just feel that, you know, keeping it in is, is to the betterment of understanding the era to mm. which these films are made. But... Yeah. I don't know. A little aside anyway. There we go. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shall we move on to The Exorcist? I think we should, yes. Yeah. I mean, The Exorcist, to me, like, it's always been a genre icon. Mm. You know, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as you know, for me, is like the granddaddy of all horror films. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Upon revisiting The Exorcist, not the whole film, but little snippets, because I've seen it a couple of times before, but it's been a long time since I have, it made me realise how 
fucking good it is. Yeah, yeah. And how much of a genre icon it deservedly is. Um, and for me, I think I still think I just about prefer Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but okay, yeah. but like, I just love it. I yeah. just forgot how how brilliant it is, you know, and how much it sort of influenced the genre. Arguably more than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. in the sense, you know, if you look at, you know, cinema is just obsessed with possession films. Yes, films t- typically possess children. Yeah, and the impact that has on the family dynamic. Mm. And you think, God, that, that is being done to death and has been for like the last decade. Yeah, yeah. And that's all because of The Exorcist. Oh yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. What your, I mean. I imagine you're sort of feeling sort of similar, right? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's great. I've seen it a couple a couple of times now. I'm so annoyed. Someone from school, I can't remember who it is, but they told me it was shit, and I took it to heart for some stupid reason. Even though, like, it was widely regarded even back then. Like, even though I was only like 13, it was widely regarded as a classic, and I knew that. But I I didn't watch it till like five years ago. And it's so good. I I have, I think the, the one thing that takes me out of it, and again, like this isn't analytical of me it's just the the name of the de- the demon and i think i might have mentioned this before oh yeah the na- it's shit it's called pazuzu oh yeah sounds pazuzu. like an australian bird or something like, <laughs> yeah, i never yeah, liked yeah. the name of the demon and it really pazuzu. threw me i quite like it yeah i can uh, from. it just yeah i don't know that that kind of threw me off a bit but apart from that and it's a stupid gripe uh, and i think it's yeah wonderful really good really unexpected uh, I forgot how urban it is as well because mm. it's like it's for for its time it was a modern set in modern day, which is was by no means groundbreaking but slightly unusual for a horror film not to be kind of a like gothic. Do you know what yeah, I mean? You, yeah. you know, there's not like crows flying out of a, the roof of a church mm. all, like, every five seconds and there's not like there's not even the atmosphere isn't really generated by shadow or anything like no. that. It's, and the tension and the suspense and this kind of harks back to the French Connection a little bit it's all about what you can see mm. which is like the opposite of Hitchcock I always find mm. like I just love that I love how horrifying um, the the child's face becomes and just like how confrontational it is to look at it <laughs> like mm. it's just it's revolting and mm. like really and that's where the horror comes from it's really visceral um, and no subsequent child possession horror films come close to being oh, that God, no. horrifying no, no, no. like no. no it's always like shitty blurry like sunken eyes stuff mm, yeah, like it's yeah. never like linda blair with sort of a moldy face going like your mother sucked cocks in hell like yeah. jesus christ yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and that got nominated for an oscar well you got 10 oscar nominations is that right is it 10, ten? yeah Shit. which uh, i mean for a horror film is a yeah, rarity well, yeah, I, I was think. Yeah, I was reading about. Uh, I think it was either Blatty or Freakin. You really, really disappointed it didn't win more. But I was there just thinking, like horror films never get nominated. No, God, no. Seldom. Like no. uh, it's been a really long time. Was the I last think. one, maybe Get Out, was the last one to get nominated. Probably, and that yeah. was mm, that might have been screenplay, which actually is the only Oscar the Exorcist won. Was, oh really? Yeah, yeah, oh, it was a screenplay. Okay. I was reading the screenplay today actually, and it's, it's yeah. You can tell it's written by the guy that wrote the book. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, okay. It's really yeah, good, yeah. though. Really well, as you'd imagine, well written. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea about the the sort of domestic, the domestic nature of a lot of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if it is is this, and I'm, I might be wrong, but it's sorry. I'm not 100 percent sure when I say this, but I feel like it's sort of like one of the precursors to that sort of 
domestic horror, the, the invasion mm. of the, the home, the domestic space, which became yeah. incredibly popular as the seventies went on. Yeah, yeah. Halloween, especially, you know. But I, I, I yeah, I, I adore it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And when you look at the film on an analytical level as well, that there, there, it's so thematically rich. Oh, mate, yeah, you yeah. Know, like um, I've seen it a couple of times now, and you know, every time it's like. Yeah. you find something else to unpack and you know i was in the process of doing research there's just so much stuff that that, that comes that, that comes to the fore and a lot of it's about sort of conflicts yeah conflicts of faith yes uh conflict between science and faith as mm. well there's yeah, another, there's another yeah. one it's interesting that there's a creative conflict running through the actual process of making the film between friedkin as this sort of hardened cynical filmmaker yeah yeah with Blatty, who he wrote, he he wrote this after his mother's death. Oh the, wow! The, okay, the, the book. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying, basically, in his words, I'm sort of very, very much sort of loosely paraphrasing him, but faith was more hope than a belief. Oh yeah, oh, which God. is a real strong theme in in, in the movie. That's tough. That's a tough thing to stomach, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's really weighty. I love that there's that sort of creative battle between cynicism and hope, mm. which I feel like the film carries, particularly in in the way. It, so when Regan starts to obviously, you know, when she starts to become possessed, mm. like the first half of the film is her like being tested on. Yes. And, and in an effort to sort of find some kind of diagnosis within the realms of, you know, scientific understanding. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about uh, Friedkin's documentary aesthetic in sort of being, in finding the grit in an environment or a way of life that is commonly held within people, you know, with police officers mm. or detectives. In this case, it's used to sort of quite clinical effect. Yeah. And it's sort of really close. Like the bits where like they inject her and they pull the thing out and blood squirts out everywhere. You know, it's just those little moments that are like, you know, it sort of speaks to this idea that, that you know, obviously like medical science is something that is quite rightly lauded as one of the greatest advancements and to the greatest benefit of the human race. But a lot of the procedures are still sort of rooted in like, like quite archaic Method, yeah. methodology you know yeah. cutting and stabbing and mm. you know there's something that really sort of unsettling about that that there's a and, and it sort of communicates a vulnerability yeah and i think it's like a vulnerability that like the sort of more uh theological elements of the film expose a little bit yeah to yeah. make it scarier mm. because and to heighten that conflict between you know, modern science or indeed modern society and the myths that are much more dominant in our past and indeed in theology and which meant much of which is disregarded even by the priest himself. Yeah, yeah. Even though you could argue that's more of a crisis of faith on his part. But mm. Yeah, I like I like the idea of this, this whole, what you were saying about uh, home, the, the invasion of the home because... Uh, I was doing like again. I was reading about how it came out at the same time when Watergate was happening. The scandal about Watergate, oh, okay, yeah, and like yeah. the idea that people were now re- people now started to slowly realise that our our president can like break into places <laughs> and he could like find information anywhere he wants. So so yeah, that that might be a 
maybe a reason why it was as successful as it was not obviously again like it was controversial particularly because of the theological aspects of it which a lot of people found difficult to stomach Mm. and it's a whole scene with the crucifix and stuff and I imagine if you're a diehard Christian fucking hell that's tough that's going to be a really difficult thing to watch I mean why would you go and watch it but then I suppose it doesn't it's not on the poster is it I suppose (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah it's like I don't know. I just thought that whole Watergate thing was quite interesting. There's something as interesting well. there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I like yeah. that. It's an interesting comparison. I'm not yeah. considered, but yeah, it's the that's just that right era, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the sort of other central themes in the film, I think, is again we talk about we sort of mentioned this mm. earlier on in, in, in response to the uh, in, to Friedkin and Blatty's sort of like spiritual differences. Um, it is about a crisis of faith, really, isn't it? Yes. You know, yeah. how can you see? good or see god as some sort of benevolent caring protector when mm. there is so much horror yeah when the horror is so much more prevalent and so much more in your face yeah um when it's when it's literally god's adversary yeah yeah exactly that, that is in yeah. your house not him yeah, <laughs> all yeah. of a sudden you're like yeah it's that's really crazy really interesting heaven is still something you have to have faith for but hell yeah. is there yeah 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 <laughs> hell, I mean? hell is on earth yeah now. exactly yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just yeah and it's played so well i mean you know the priest uh damien Karras, who is the you know the vicar who's having the sort of uh crisis with faith himself and um you know his his crisis isn't even it doesn't arise as a result of this tale of, of demonic possession it arises from the fact that he can't save his mum yeah. his mum's dying mm. and there's even a scene where like he he sees like a homeless guy in a in in the in the new york underground oh okay yeah, and he yeah. asks for money and he, he can't help him either really yeah and he's yeah. i think once he starts to hone in on this idea that there is so much horror in the world that he is incapable of dealing with mm. and powerless to, yeah. to deal with that sort of spills over and sort of almost you know, drowns him yeah and he can't you know find solace in a god that he feels isn't really dealing with these problems or saving people that in his mind mm. don't deserve you know, <laughs> yeah. the, their own personal horror that they're facing yeah okay yeah, that's so really it's cool. it, you know i don't know like i just find it really interesting that there's so much about that about that and i just love that that you know it feels like Matter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because of that disagreement, that theological disagreement yeah, between Friedkin yeah. and, and Blatty, which is so prevalent, but it works because oh, that yeah. could have so easily fucking destroyed the film. Oh, completely! You know, like yeah. a, an ideological difference of that magnitude, you think, fuck! I mean, how the hell did Exorcist end up being that good yeah. as a result of that? <laughs> Do you know? And then also, like widely regarded by Blatty as a, like a masterpiece as well yeah, when it yeah, came yeah, out, yeah. like he loved it and he he, he was a defender of it. Uh, during its release and then directed the third one after he hated the second one so much yeah yeah yeah, it's crazy that how how it kind of once he saw the um, Friedkin's sort of vision on screen he was like oh Right. Okay. I see what you've. Yeah, that does work, and that, yeah. and you've you have faithfully adapted the source material much more than I thought when we were making it. That's crazy. Mm. That's great. I I need to revisit it properly, and I think I will because I think I will. Yeah. Um, you know, it's still very fresh in my mind because it's one of those films that sort of burnt into your mind mm. uh, once you sort of you know find your way to it again, but. Um, I really want to sit down with someone that hasn't seen it before. Oh, right, yeah. I really want to do that. So I need to just find someone, pick someone up off the street, (laughs) and just bring them in. Yeah, yeah. Like, look. Here here you are. Yeah, watch this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
yeah, an, an undisputed masterpiece. Oh man! You know? And upon really getting into thinking, you know, you know, researching and thinking about the film for this episode, it really made me re sort of realise how high up in my favourite films this is. Mm. Which is oh, nice. Wow. It's sort of a strange thing to sort of almost rediscover a film that you've always loved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, strange. And you find new things in it that you yeah, you can kinda of, you've previously maybe overlooked. That's great. Yeah. Um, what a film. Oh. What a movie. What a movie. So I guess we'll move on to Sorcerer. Sorcerer was his next film, yeah. Yeah. Nineteen seventy seven. which, as you said at the time, didn't didn't do so good. Um and it got a. I saw it on your recommendation because the Blu-ray was coming out, mm-hmm. the the like remastered Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and it was like quite highly anticipated. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. This is a blind spot. So I bought it. That's great. And I've not seen the Wages of Fear, which is the film. It, um, oh, it's kind of a remake of Wages of Fear. Yeah. Um, but it's great again an exercise in tension I think more so tension is like the central theme of it really oh yeah tension and suspense and um, edge of your seat stuff it's famously about a uh, the kind of central conceit is uh, these guys have to drive a truck through is it South America yeah Uh, and the truck's got like nitroglycerin in it which if it it's almost almost a bit like speed, you know, <laughs> the same kind of concept. In, in, <laughs> yeah, in like if yeah. it if it kind of bumps just too hard, just a reverse version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, the the nitroglycerin will uh, will explode, and so they have to be really careful driving this truck around uh, South America. And the three men don't get on, do they? No. <laughs> uh, there's a great quote actually by um a by by Freakin who basically um when he was kind of talking about the themes in Sorcerer, he said, uh, so it's about, a f- a f- you know, it's about the world being full of strangers who hated one another, but if they don't cooperate and if they don't work together, they'd blow up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's kind of, I love that idea that it, it that they're forced to work together. Yeah not, yeah, yeah. not because, not because they have to be nice to each other, because if they don't, it, this could, this could be the end of their lives. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm assuming you love Sorcerer as well. I think you you like yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I was the same as you. I, I remember sort of working my way through Freakin's work a few years ago and Sorcerer being really notoriously difficult to find, even on DVD. Right, which is why the Blu-ray was so yeah. anticipated. Okay. And I think because yeah. of the... I, I imagine because of like the, the commercial struggles it had upon release, maybe that impacted mm. the studio's enthusiasm to release... A yeah. physical copy of it. Yeah, but it's funny. Like I remember, I was seeing on social media fairly recently because obviously after you know Freakin has passed away, there's lots of stuff that's circulating around him on social media. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of them is that he was like commenting on on, on Amazon, oh, an okay. Amazon account, commenting on DVD versions of the film, saying they were shit. Don't bother about it. Don't oh, bother really? Oh, yeah, yeah. man. Okay. Which again sort of speaks to that sort of bizarre. <laughs> bizarre <laughs> nature to his character oh I love it but yeah no I, I again same as you like I, I loved it I actually saw it before Wages of Fear which I watched afterwards okay yeah uh, which I kind of I'm kind of glad I did do it that way um, because I well I don't know if it really matters but I actually prefer Wages of Fear okay uh, I think it's Henry Clouseau isn't it I think that film handles the characterization a lot better right yeah but I think Friedkin's use of again that sort of documentary style handheld camera mm. brings an intensity and a claustrophobia that that makes that you know it sets it apart yeah yeah um, no i mean I, yeah i think it's great i mean uh 
Roy. Roy Scheider. Scheider again, yeah. uh, you know, a, a mainstay for Friedkin. Weirdly enough, I think he was originally after Steve McQueen. Oh, yeah. right. Okay, yeah. Um, but Steve McQueen didn't want to travel to South America, I think because of scheduling reasons. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was like, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he did yeah, say right. it was one of his regrets not having Steve McQueen in it. Oh, man, okay. Shady does an average... Uh, an admirable job. I mean, he's you know, one of the great actors of the era. I think he's someone that really f- flies under the radar in that era, actually. Because mm. um, of your De Niro's, your Gene Hackman's, etc. People forget. I, people forget he's the main character in Jaws. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's hell. bizarre. Yeah, but he's he's a fantastic actor, and you know he's great in French Connection as well. Um, he does all. I think he was slightly typecast, but that, he plays so well to that kind of yeah, he, tough he, guy, doesn't he? He definitely was. I mean, he was in another cop film not long after called The Fifty Two Pickups, which again no, right. is like another seedy urban sort of cop drama. Yeah. Um, but it's great. It's you know, it's not necessarily like a, a pale imitation. Obviously it's his own thing. It's not as good as French Connection, but it's yeah. you know. So I can sort of see yeah, you're right, I think he's sort of one of those actors that can be sort of pigeonholed. Yeah. Quite easily. But you know, I, just fantastic. Yeah, great film. Incredibly tense. Sweats just so sweaty. It's sweaty <laughs> yeah, it film. is, yeah. It's like Both deliverance. The viewer yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the characters in it. But yeah, no, a, a great movie and but it, it didn't see the success. No, um, it's uh, yeah. It came out a couple of weeks after Star Wars, a week, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah a week, week after, after Star yeah. Wars. So like, Jesus, that's that's bad timing. That isn't is it? terrible timing. I mean, yeah. So what you will about the film in comparison to its previous two films? Yeah, it's not as good. Mm, no, I don't think. Uh, Friedkin thinks it's his best. So maybe there's something in that. Maybe worth a rewatch on that basis. I think it. I think it really stands out from a technical perspective mm. like the set oh, God, pieces yeah. are just like the bridge yeah i mean again not as nail-biting as the chase in the french connection but on its own it's like that's so well like masterfully done mm. in a, ma- a kind of master stroke of production design and a, but a weird mixture of like controlled a controlled sort of production design and then also freakin's trademark kind of chaotic camera moves which a lot of close-ups of wheels in sorcerer yeah, wheels yeah, yeah. going over rocks you know, oh god oh yeah, don't know yeah. not now not now <laughs> like you're looking at your watch has it been an hour and a half yet is it gonna blow up like um yeah no i i do, I do love sorcerer and it is a shame that it isn't as well regarded although it has definitely got a cult following yeah, now it's definitely had a critical resurgence mm. i just think at the time when you've got star wars out there's just i think he did i think that is a pretty just reason yeah you know, i don't think you can really level that at friedkin necessarily yeah you know, yeah i mean that's you know you're you know you're, you're competing against one of the defining moments in yeah. mainstream cinema like you're not gonna win <laughs> no i mean it's yeah. not a blockbuster as a sorcerer no like, and you know you, you, got, you had jaws which is arguably the first blockbuster two years before and then star wars which was this like cultural phenomenon and yeah, it must have just enveloped everything. It was like a, it's like Kevin Costner's The Postman, which actually is a shit film, but um, <laughs> but it came out the same. It's, it's so it's always quite sad. What um, listening to stories about films that came out the same week as something like a Juggernaut, like yeah. just in this Titanic in this case. Yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, The yeah. Postman came out the same week as Titanic. No fucking chance. Yeah, you just got no, no chance. chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, No, I like that. I I love that that scene on the on, on the on the rope. 
bridge. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It, it, it's a different kind of tension, isn't it? And it mm. speaks to Freakin's adaptability as a filmmaker. Yes. He can, he can, also, he can generate tension in these high-octane, mm. you know, quick-cutting chase sequences. But he can also generate tension in these, in these moments where it's all about being slow. Yeah, 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 literally, yeah. And he also sort of characterises the vehicles really well. Oh, yeah. You know, like yeah. these sort of hulking, ageing beasts. Like Mad Max style yeah. trucks. Yeah, and they're sort of grinding and croaking, almost as if they can anticipate their demise as yeah, much as the people yeah. that drive them, you know? <laughs> oh, I didn't think about it like yeah. that. Have you seen the concept art for the truck? No. Oh, it's, it's so good. It's like really amazing illustrations of what they wanted it to look like. It's pretty faithful. They ended up doing a really good job of building this thing. Yeah, because um, they, they don't look like conventional trucks necessarily. Well, they do and they don't. It's yeah, it's they're Not modified. Not any knowledge about trucks. <laughs> no, yeah. I think they're modified. Follow anyway. our truck podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. that one. We're going to have to record that after Trucking this. boys to trucking men. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, a great film. Yeah, and, really good. You know, and, I, and I'm glad it got that release. Yeah, um, because I don't know if I ever would have seen it had that release not happened. I'd never heard of it before. You said, "Oh, Sorcerer is getting a Blu-ray release," and I was like, "What Sorcerer?" I was like, oh shit, that's freaking like, mm. yeah. It, again, it's just you know, it was disappeared. It's just it's an odd one. And I mean, yeah, like, I mean, he is playing with genre, isn't he? Because like you were talking about, and we'll talk about this a bit more later on, like Bug. Although it's a horror film, it's a body. It's like it looks like body horror, doesn't it? So yeah, it's sort of like a psychological slash body horror thriller. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, there's some similarities to The Exorcist there, but it, it looks like it's the th- theological aspects. It looks like they're absent. He's done his cop film, and now he's doing this like a sort of South American set almost caper <laughs> like the tension. slowest road movie ever yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no oh. yeah great film mm. great film great movie I'm going to jump a little bit further on in his career because uh, you know he, he did have a few misses some of mm. which people don't say is are, are as bad as, as the sort of audiences and critics at the time said they were but largely that it's sort of unanimously agreed that you know that there was a quality a bar of quality which he established and many films didn't really meet that quality right yeah yeah you really get the sense now, you know. You know he. So, Sorcerer was nineteen seventy-seven, right? Yes. Uh, to live and die in LA, it's nineteen eighty-five. So, in between that period, he's had some pretty, you know, he's had some sort of pretty bad films, right? Yes, swings and misses, maybe some real mm. misses. And you really get the sense by nineteen eighty-five and to live and die in LA, this is like his big swing to earn back some credibility as a filmmaker. Okay, and yeah. There's a real urgency about mm. this movie that, like, you know, like because. You just get the feeling that Friedkin needs it. <laughs> Do you right, know what I mean? Okay. To sort of, yeah. you know, because so many filmmakers, I guess, are really good at it in a certain time period and then struggle to adapt. Mm, yeah. When things change. Yeah. Um, but by God, does Friedkin achieve it in To Live and Die in LA? I, I genuinely think it's, you know, if it wasn't for The Exorcist, it would probably be my favourite Friedkin movie. Okay, wow, okay. So imagine his mastery of the sort of cop detective police buddy thing the you know that he perfected in French Connection and then transporting it to the sort of hedonism and excess of the neon drenched 1980s <laughs> okay and he just he just does it he yeah just, he just absolutely achieves it you know and I always find that so incredibly fascinating that a filmmaker that can do the hard-boiled sort of detective thing mm. he can do the, the car chasers yeah he can do the sort of like grimy thematic work that sort of bubbles away underneath yeah he can do all that but he manages to take all that, which to me feels so, you know, that all that stuff 
feels so it belongs in the 1970s police drama yeah yeah but he just brings that sort of same sort of cynicism and dirtiness into the 80s and it's just incredible so i've not i've not watched it unfortunately i'd, le- oh, I'd like to yeah see i'll lend it, it to you because yeah. it's what i love so much about it is that despite the fact he's in like a he's clearly like desperate to sort of um you know remind people of his of his skill and craft as a filmmaker he still stays with his creative impulses you know he cast william peterson in the lead role okay um uh, is it csi the main the guy from csi oh right okay yeah, so, so this uh, is like his first major <laughs> left field choice yeah he I wanted mean, to cast someone in french connection in a similar fashion and he wasn't able to do it, it was some journalist or something oh really yeah yeah i mean i'm glad he finally got to pursue his creative impulses in, yeah. in this one then yeah <laughs> i mean even if you think about french connection gene hackman had only had a few roles i mean obviously his big role before that was a role in um bonnie and clyde oh okay yeah uh so you know like i th- I think it's very much in the spirit of that era, though, I guess, that they would sort of bank on these relative unknowns mm. as part of that, you know, the ethos of the filmmakers of the time. Yeah. Whereas I think in the 1980s, that wasn't something that was really done very much. No, it was all about uh, the star. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, to cast, like, someone who was literally just doing, I think he was just doing stage production work at the time, to give him a lead role mm. in a big... And a film like this, I mean, yeah, it definitely isn't got as much money behind it as his previous films, but still, it's a big, it's a big gamble. Okay, yeah, he, you know, William Defoe plays the villain. Oh, brilliant! So, okay. like, you know, he'd been in a few films, but he again, he wasn't like a household name. But what I especially love about it is the, the visuals and the feel of the movie. Okay, it completely embodies the, the sort of excess of the nineteen eighties. Mm. You know, like that high energy sort of narrative structure that represents that sort of Reaganist. That Reaganist period of like yeah. pure excess, <laughs> and you've got Robbie Muller's cinematography, who's along probably after Jack Cardiff is my favourite cinematographer. You know the guy that just you know at this point he just finished working with Wim Wenders in Paris, Texas. Oh, okay. You know right. a guy that's mastery of like colour, yeah. neon, which is fucking perfect for the eighties, right? I mean, yeah. I was just going to say this film sounds a bit post Blade Runner almost. Yeah. Is oh, it? oh, I mean, yeah, it's okay. just, yeah. No, it's it's visually. Absolutely stunning. Such oh, a good-looking movie. I think Robbie Muller is, you know... He also worked with Jim Jarmusch as well. So, oh, right, okay. Yeah. You know, someone... That, and he also did 24-Hour Party People, which I think is quite strange. Yeah, yeah. That was like a sort of early digitally shot film, yeah, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So, Michael Winterbottom. I think that's quite strange that he did that. I didn't know he did that. Was, oh. That's odd, yeah. There's that sort of 80s coolness to the t- detective. I think these sort of 80s detective shows almost fetishized. Mm. you know the, the the role of the detective you know yeah and yeah. even though like it's almost more like secret agents detectives friedkin plays them like detectives right or, yeah, yeah he, he puts them in this sort of detective archetype and they're dripping in that coolness but in the case of the lead character it's a it's immediately apparent that he is not a particularly nice person okay he's yeah. like a person that would happily alienate or destroy anyone that gets in his way of yeah. the thrill of the chase again okay. common yeah, theme yeah. from you know Gene Hackman yeah. in, in French Connection but it's it played with much more coldness here much more calculated coldness mm. whereas Popeye Doyle is like a brute yes yeah. um, here it's more like yeah like there's a facade of normalcy that he sort of breaks in these sort of one-to-one exchanges particularly with his lover when she says you know what happens if I started giving you information stopped giving you information sorry and he just says I just you know, I'd throw you in. You know what I mean? Oh, you know what wow, I mean? Yeah, so he's yeah. like, he's hell bent on, on doing anything to sort of chase the the thrill or the high, and eventually, obviously, win. 
and in, in that sense, there isn't really sort of heroism in the traditional sense. He isn't heroic. He's 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 not driven by the need to protect people. Okay, so um, selfish. He yeah, sounds incredibly selfish. selfish this yeah, guy. He yeah, is. He's, he's he's insane. Yeah, <laughs> um, really. And uh, of course, there's another great car chase as well. But this time, there's added tension. So basically, what it is, without trying to give too much away, I don't want to spoil it for you because I want you to see it. But yeah, yeah. Um, they try and rip off uh, an, a gang in order to to get in uh, closer to um, catching the main villain. And they realise that the um, upon sort of like mucking up this business, this this deal, that the people orchestrating the deal are actually also trying to catch criminals. They're like the FBI or something. Uh, okay. They're getting chased, yeah, yeah but yeah. can't be arrested because if they're arrested, it blows the case wide oh, open. Right, yeah or, yeah. or actually, no, it tanks the case entirely. Oh wow! So there's yeah. an added layer of tension as well. Oh cool! Uh, and there's also a score by Wang Chung. Oh right, okay. Eighties yeah. mainstay before yeah. they released their their, their their solid hits, um, which is brilliant. Again, I think a lot of people with eighties soundtracks would be like, "Well, they're a bit dated," but again, it's about the eighties, so it's perfect. I don't know why. Mm. That's I don't really see that as a valid criticism, <laughs> to be honest. No, it was the start of uh, the electronic era, wasn't the synth, it? So, just like this, just like the, yeah. you know, the just synth, you know, ridiculously it, sort of just just constantly throughout the film. That for me is. Just yeah, that's the eighties. That's yeah. that's a staple of the eighties. That's not that doesn't date films for me no. at all. I think I do think it's I think it's unusual now to hear that that yeah. a synth used to that level uh, and with such this it's they're so raw at the time as well. Like they were they were overused, but I I love it. I think it's yeah. Quite, I mean it's mm. it's again it's it's perfect for the era. Mm. I think when we've had this sort of eight this period of eighties revisionism, haven't we? And I think when it's yeah. used in that context, I totally see that as something that's a bit uh frustrating yeah um but in the context of being a film being made in the 80s to me it's like one of the best i think it's a real hidden gem from the 1980s that mm. a lot of people don't really know a lot about and it's oh man yeah well myself included i it's, will it's a really fantastic fantastic film nice ah. so worth a go uh for the sake of chronology i'll move on then we, we can both talk about the last film okay I know you've got quite a lot you want to say about that. Yeah. But yeah. today I watched another one of his sort of fairly lesser known films. Arguably, I mean, for me, certainly one of his lesser known good films. Yeah. Uh, a film called Bug by Friedkin, of course, made in 2006 or released in 2006. Yeah, okay. And uh, I watched it today, actually, for the first time. Because <laughs> uh, as I said, I'd bought it ages ago. It was in the DVD collection and sort of just forgotten that I had it. And of course, upon yes. talking about this, it, suddenly I was like, the light bulb moment. I was like, yes, <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to watch that. But it's, it's you know, freaking bringing his like equal parts clinical and sort of grotty documentary style aesthetic to the confines of what is mostly a film that is shot in like one building or one room or okay. two or three rooms, but in the same flat. Right. So a lot yeah. of it's shot in like a motel. Right. Okay. And it follows this woman who um, is, is working in a, in a bar and, you know, drinks most of her evenings away. And uh, she is being harassed by a former lover who's been sent to prison who is abusive. Okay. Um, so this woman has clearly sort of got emotional trauma. She's mm. been besieged by trauma. Yeah. And sort of scarcely holding together. Compounding that trauma is um, losing her, her child. Oh, God, okay. Uh, yeah. When they, she basically... She goes shopping with her son, and he disappears, and he's and she's never been able to find him since. Oh, that's that's a tough. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've got this sense of this trauma that is like you know very prevalent, um, mm. which is sort of I guess 
um, medicated by yeah. you know alcohol, uh, drug taking, and okay. etc. She happens upon a ma- her friend at the bar introduces her to Michael Shannon's character, mm. who initially presents himself as an odd but sort of quite nice bloke, which is in stark contrast to her ex-partner. Nice, who okay. Who's back on the scene after coming out of prison. Right, yeah. But as the film progresses, he shows to have his own trauma as a former soldier in Iraq. Oh, okay. And oh. it's about this idea, I guess, of like being how like the, the a mind that's been besieged by trauma mm. is obviously um, open to various sort of neurological issues you know, yeah um you know paranoid schizophrenia for example is is one of the conditions that is um paranoid schizophrenic <laughs> well exactly yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> that was on the dvd case <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> four stars <laughs> how the how you know a person like that is more susceptible to the to sort of be enveloped in in, in paranoia mm. and to convince yourself of uh, conspiracies. Oh right, yeah, uh, and so much so to the point that you you know that the the characters begin to superimpose those conspiracies and those that paranoia onto their immediate environment okay. and onto themselves as well. Yeah, you know, it's the way sort of um, yeah, like trauma. I guess how trauma can impact the way we perceive the world. Yeah, and our susceptibility to not only sort of really different, you know, really complex uh, neurological issues, but also yeah conspiracy and how the machinations of higher powers it's all about coming after you yeah the singular nature of of, of that sort of paranoia mm. um and it gives it sort of like a claustrophobic omnipresence which <sighs> sort of again you know batters the characters and uh yeah leads them to do some pretty weird and dark stuff that's crazy that i i think the use of the child going missing in a shopping mall that's very i mean that would because uh, is it unresolved you never find out what happens it is to the unresolved child. yeah yeah so yeah. that there you go then i mean like your mind is just going to be filled with scenarios uh, with what's happened i mean I, that that harks back to you know that Jamie Bolger case that horrible mm. thing that happened in uh, in merseyside in 93 like imagine never knowing what happened though mm. like that's that's the worst thing and that would invite conspiratorial ideas mm. into your mind and I guess in, into your sort of partner's mind as well uh, so yeah I mean I've not seen it but that 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 sort of cements it in my mind it's something definitely again along with To Live and Die in LA to, to be watched yeah it's it's really simply done as well like there's no frills to it like it's just it's it just shows the value of like tried and tested techniques if done properly mm. and given a, like a, a sprinkling of freakings yeah. you know <laughs> you know deft handling of darkness you know he can really handle dark themes really quite well at his best yeah and um you know it, then it sort of becomes this psychological slash body horror because michael shannon starts sorry michael shannon's character starts to reveal that he has this so like, uh, auditory and visual hallucinations of yeah yeah basically he thinks there's like bugs everywhere uh, okay and yeah. that these bugs are like part of some sort of like um global conspiracy by the united states to sort of maintain the status quo and all this sort of oh, stuff man. strangely relatable in the modern age certainly in the post-covid age where yeah you know a lot of people the unseen yeah threat, yeah right? a lot of mm. people you know were saying that they're going to inject you with micro microchips yeah yeah. which seems obviously ridiculous from our perspective but when you sort of see this film that does treat 
it treats the mindset with real sincerity. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, and it sort of makes you realise in their mind how legitimate it is. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. And um, I'm not saying that in the in the respective of people that are in in terms of the COVID thing, but it it did make sort of humanise that a little bit for me in a yeah, way. Whereas before, well. I would have sort of just gone, oh, whatever, what a load of bollocks. Yeah, yeah. It sort yeah. of humanises that, and you think, what is the you know what is what's under what's that? the catalyst for yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing in this case, it's. Uh, post-traumatic stress yeah he's yeah and then that obviously leads to the 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 presentation of other sort of issues that he has wow but it's also this idea that these characters sort of find each other at first Mm. and there's something quite there's obviously something inherently sad about that uh their desperation for connection sort of brings them together and and ultimately is to their detriment but there's something bizarrely sweet amongst the horror of it, which is yeah. really strange. And classic Friedkin, I think. I yeah. think he knows how to sort of to, to make those moments feel odd, to sort of have a contrasting emotion to what you should be feeling, which is definitely still there as well. I know uh, there's a subdued, there's definitely a subdued warmness, maybe less so in The Exorcist, but definitely like Fred's connection with the the relationship between the two cops. Yeah, they, yeah, they do yeah. sort of love each other, and, yeah, and it is yeah. there, and it's not at the centre of anything. But like he is good at that. He is good at kind of undercutting you with like character moments. Um, I just realised another reason why I haven't watched Bug. Um, it came out the year before a film with Jessica Alban in it called The Eye, which looked shit. And the poster's <laughs> the poster's really similar. <laughs> it's yeah. a, and uh, it's like a kind of white background with uh, the the main title of the film embedded in a body part. And uh, I, it's the same kind of style. Yeah. And so I must have written it off. It gets lumped in. Yeah, 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 I can see that. And that yeah. Yeah, speaks to how... <laughs> Effective or ineffective uh, advertising campaign can be. It's odd because I love the poster now. I looked at it just then. And I was like, "That's really good." Like, yeah, really cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, a really, a real great film, and, and it was sort of, again, just a, a reminder of simple techniques. Um, mm. And you know, the subtext work behind those simple techniques done so well that mm. you know, there's no need for the, the the frills. You know, and it's a much more cinematically sedate film. Yeah, for for, uh, for Friedkin. And again, it just shows that adaptability. You know, he's, you know, he's worked across so many eras of film history. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the guys had a few duds, but when he hits it, you know, it shows exactly. that ability to, to sort of uh, transition. I mean, because you think about the mid two thousands, it was all about that sort of like, again, a, a sort of handheld digital camera style. Yes. I don't know if if. Um, uh, if it was shot digitally, I'm not that sort of technically knowledgeable, so I don't know. Just by looking at the film, I'd be interested to know what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it, it feels like one of those like real sort of cheap and personal films that I guess that kind of technology allowed in, in, in that period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, different lighting setups and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's more simple lighting setups or no yeah. lighting setups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because digital the sensors let more light in yeah and it was easier to clean up and it was much easier to just like point and shoot basically yeah um yeah. and like that must have been i i wouldn't be surprised if it was shot digitally yeah i, I don't know i'd love to know yeah i'd be, I'd be the, yeah, yeah let me know as soon as you see it i will do um, yeah but, um, <laughs> even if not it feels evocative of that yeah of that period of like you know cameras that are used for like home movies are being used for movies or yeah things, like you know. 28 days later with that mini dv yes right yeah, yeah, and yeah, also yeah. um there was a film called, film with peter mullen in it that was digitally shot that came out around the same time as bug i can't remember what it's called set in like an insane asylum but that has a similar feel to it anyway fuck 
can't remember what that film's called. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Let me jump forward to 2011. That's right. Yeah, Killer Joe. Oh. Great film. Again, mm. another really good one. I don't. Yeah. Th- I mean, it. It's cleaner. I think he's probably employed a different cinematographer at this point and was more focused on sort of depicting that kind of small town America, uh, trailer park sort of style. Um, and I actually don't remember a tremendous amount about it, but I remember it being, again, like really confrontational, especially mm. at the end with the chicken drumstick and stuff and the way that's kind of like hypersexualized at the end. Yeah, yeah. Really odd, really like one of the most bizarre film things I've seen in a freaking film. Again, it's horrifying because of what you've shown. There's nothing. There's nothing like lurking in the background of any of his films. It's yeah, just yeah. like, oh, that's that's a gruesome moment. Um, uh, start the reconnaissance as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, arguably, the film that elevated Matthew McConaughey out of his sort of pretty boy, um, rom com character yeah yes yeah. you know that sort of stuff and back into the the um the, the sort of the art house section of uh, of cinema um yeah yeah absolutely really interesting casting choice again we were talking earlier about uh, about a freaking um yeah choice of actor i mean that's a really unusual one but he must have seen something in mcconaughey there which which he, he kind of admired and cast him and Emil Hirsch as well I mean he's really good in it um, yeah yeah Juno Temple yeah well. that's right yeah, yeah. I, I just from what I remember I remember it being really really atmospheric and really like kind of in in the in the same vein as like Place Beyond the Pines right and, right, okay. and that, that kind of yeah small town Americana style and, and I think you know for him to transition into that that sort of section of filmmaking he does a really good job and it's earned its place amongst sort of those sort of films like Mud as well and that's another that's another McConaughey small town America stuff oh yeah yeah, I remember Mud Uh, although he's a much more sympathetic character in Mud (laughs) yeah Uh, this guy turned out to be a bit of a prick in the end oh god yeah yeah yeah, yeah. nasty yeah I mean I I wish I'd seen it more recently actually but I do um, hold that in quite high regard as well absolutely it's it's, again it's, it's a film that's there's a sort of uh, ever-present intensity mm. and he there's, he almost I don't know it sort of feels like he's like mythologizing this sort of that American trailer park existence do you yeah. know what I mean like that docu- documentary film style aesthetic could have so easily sort of made it feel like more like a documentary in the pursuit of realism yes but there's something a little bit more I don't know it feels like even though Handheld is evidently using the film it feels the impact is not quite as Rough as yeah. in the films, it feels like there's more control. Yes, I think so. And this, and I think that speaks to again that that the what you're saying about that, the intensity of the film and the unease. Mm. I think that is is created by that sort of perhaps more controlled use of the camera in in the, yeah. of the more sort of more unsettling or tense sequences. Yeah. A lot of static camera. Yeah, a, lot of, a yeah, lot of that. Yeah, particularly in the sort of interactions between the characters. It's funny how, I mean, it, it comes full circle because I feel like Killer Joe was quite heavily inspired by Seven in the way it was shot. It's okay. so more, more yeah, methodical, yeah. right? And more only handheld when it wants to be. And again, I was looking up uh, the inspiration, uh, French Connection inspirations. Fincher uh, decided to use handheld in Seven in the 
chase sequence uh, because of the French connection. Okay. So it comes full yeah, circle. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. There we go. Um, yeah, I thought that was great because Fincher famously fucking hates handheld. <laughs> like yeah. he cannot. He doesn't like. There's like one shot in the social network that's handheld, and he was really he really didn't want to use it, and he had to. <laughs> I yeah, thought that was yeah. great, but. Um, but for seven, there's a really intense chase sequence in like a, I think it's a hotel or a, or like an apartment building, when he's chasing John Doe, and it goes mental. All of a sudden, it go it, it's it change it it changes style completely to to like the chase in the French Connection of just like it's everywhere. It's just a big blurry mess. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I just thought that was just interesting. Kind of yeah, full yeah, circle. no, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a really unsettling movie, mm. and it sort of plays on a lot of the tropes of the Deep South as well, but not in a way that feels particularly offensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might need to rewatch it before I commit to that hundred percent. But no, I think what was that right. Ron Howard South Deep South film? Oh God, yeah, the, the hillbilly. Yeah, thing. completely sort of bizarre. Is it called the hillbilly? Ultimately exploitative film wasn't very good I mean that sort of deep south thing can be used for real negative effects yeah, sometimes <laughs> yeah I mean you know, being, that, that's been the most arch- yeah. the sort of most archetypal example of a negative representation yeah yeah um, yeah no a really great film and a, and a horrifying ending really probably uh, the most horrifying ending in any of Freakman's films <laughs> Christ yeah yeah or in any film Really, that I could think of in, in recent memory. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah, it catches you off guard. It almost gets sort of Gaspar No levels. Oh, of, god, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's the perfect grotesque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got some comments here. Oh, cool, nice. Uh, not as many. <laughs> that's nothing to do with the fact that we posted it earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I put a poll out. So first off, I'll address the poll. So I put favorite Friedkin film. Mm. Uh, and you can only put four in, but I thought I'd put the four main ones, yeah, the four yeah. most well-known ones. Nice. Uh, the Exorcist, French Connection, Sorcerer, and To Live and Die in LA. Cool. Exorcist, clear winner. So right. the Exorcist, 57% uh, of, our, of our beloved listener base thought it was the best free kid film. 57? Yep. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, French yeah, Connection yeah. and Sorcerer have 14% apiece, and To Live and Die in LA at 15%. Oh, really? So, okay. You know, and I, I sort of anticipated that as... Yeah. I think um, the, the impact of the Exorcist yeah. is more. Uh, I think it's you know it's more knowable, you know, and more you know you can see it more. Yeah, it's entered into horror films have a great way of entering the public con- public's consciousness, despite the fact they never win Academy Awards. They always do have uh, a hook, yeah. right? So you know, when you think of John Landis, you don't think of like National Lampoon's Animal House, do you? You think of an American Wealth in London, and I think that might be the same thing. Is it's just like you know, it's probably almost certainly one of his most widely seen films yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and arguably one of his best as well i don't i don't know i think it probably I'm... is his best film for mm. me I, I mean yeah i think to live and die in la and french connection are so close to for me i can't <laughs> i don't know what i'd pick yeah. right now probably to live and die in la uh, okay well there you go that might change <laughs> um i asked some questions if anyone had any other films they wanted to mention or indeed wanted to just expand Okay. Uh, and Lee put all this in the selection of phenomenal, but especially to live and die in LA. So. Uh, okay. Uh, that yeah. From what you described, that seems very much up Lee's yes, street. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And he also said, also Killer Joe deserves a shout out. A modest yet slick and sweaty Southern thriller, which arguably began the reconnaissance. Oh, uh, cool. So there you go. There we go. Nice. Pointed that earlier. Oh, perfect. 
And I also, you know, any general things about Friedkin himself. And Alfie said, shitty person, one of the greats of, a, of New Hollywood. Oh, right. Okay. So yeah. I guess that's speaking, I don't think we've really, we touched on it a little bit, but obviously his confrontational directorial style, yeah. slapping actresses. Linda Blair, yeah, yeah. child actress as well tricky i mean having some pretty ropey conversations with her as well in the process process of casting as well oh okay yeah. yeah so uh yeah i mean i, I couldn't argue with that on, the, on that basis he was definitely a very abrasive character um yeah and that's like you know you, you can see that and like you can hear the stories about the way he directed linda blair and the exorcist to, like putting her on wires just throwing her about the room and stuff yeah. i'm like and I, I think Ellen Burstyn had a similarly negative experience with him making The Exorcist. You could argue that it's all in in the pursuit of a good performance, sort of James Cameron levels of being horrible to people. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do, yeah, I think you, you, you can be decent to people and still be kind of gifted yeah <laughs> i think like it, it is it is troubling and it's difficult even back then that's not it's not nice <laughs> no and it's easy to romanticize it on the basis of how good those elements of the film are as well like mm. ellen burstein's performance is fantastic so it's just like maybe that did contribute to that but that's not the way to go about it <laughs> no know? i mean like another example is the, the classic example maybe would be like shelley duval from That's the exactly shining, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is, and that actually, that I would argue is, is definitively, definitively made her performance better because yeah. she's so, it's, you feel so dreadful for her, but she, uh, she's so hysterical in that film, and yeah, her, you can yeah. tell she's so tired, and Fucking her eyes are yeah. just like bloodshot red that whole time, but it works for the film, so yeah, like, oh, yeah. God, it can't, it couldn't be done any other way. So I mean, maybe that's just me. Uh, uh, kind of getting on the Kubrick wagon a little bit too much, but um, yeah. No, I, yeah, I think it's, you know, what we were saying earlier about it, it's easy to romanticise it on the basis of the quality of, of the work. Mm. But, you know, if the suffering was that bad, then obviously it's not worth it necessarily. No. And we have the benefit of, of watching the film, you know, mm. years, years later on. Yeah, exactly. And might, that might water down the sort of... Um, you know the negative feelings around that for many people i don't know but when you yeah. think about it yeah obviously not good <laughs> no also she, she i think she struggled to find work after the exorcist linda blair as did shallow duval after the shining it's like yeah yeah something to be said there about maybe you know if you push these actors that hard and, and kind of almost torture them to that extent they're going to lose their faith in their own jobs yeah and that yeah. i think that might have happened in both cases here like, yeah which isn't isn't good and no yeah <laughs> i mean as well talking from personal experience of my limited time spent on tv sets yeah <laughs> you know like there is no romanticism on a tv set mm. do you know what i mean like yeah. you can romanticize it as a viewer yes but you know i i never had too many bad experiences personally but i had i have worked on a tv film where the director was very difficult right and it made a lot of people's jobs very difficult and mm. stressed them out a lot and yeah it's easy to like I said, easy to romanticize from a distance, but when you see it firsthand, right, you sort of think, oh, what a bell end. Do you yeah, know what I mean? No. And I wonder what people would have thought of. You know, you're not thinking what a genius. Are yeah, you? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Strange. Oh man. Strange stuff. Uh, outro. Outro. Mm. Questing the cinematic void. There we have it. Then. Then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that 
good to, to dive deep and we perhaps wouldn't have done that had he not passed away so. no yeah yeah I mean uh, yeah that was really great actually really yeah. good to sort of yeah deep deep dive kind of dig your dig your fingers into the pie that is free <laughs> <That's> the, that, <laughs> that was that was poorly phrased maybe I should uh, shall I leave that in yeah yeah, so. I'll leave yeah, that yeah, in. yeah yeah you get what I'm saying yeah, yeah. yeah. it's meant well yeah yeah um oh so uh, as mentioned right in the uh, intro, uh, I, rec- I, I realised when we were doing the Barbie episode, I, ca- I said outro instead of intro. Uh, Got my, my wires crossed. Well, don't worry, because my mum's listened to it and she didn't mention it. Good. So, good. Good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Thank good. you. <laughs> Thank you, mum. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as mentioned in the, in the intro of this episode, we were going to pick four directors each and then leave it to the adoring listener to provide their own uh, director choices and what we'll do we'll, we'll do like a roulette thing and then we'll go away watch the films do a bit of research then do an episode about them brilliant myself and ben have chosen four directors each which we'll throw into into the roulette wheel of cinema cinema uh ben give us your four cool uh so we've got james mangold mm. uh, that's Paul- an interesting choice i like that yeah i think yeah a bit bit odd because he he's you know by his very nature he's sort of a genre director but he's done some great movies like 310 to Yuma and mm. um, obviously Logan and he did a film I quite like called Identity as well um, so I'd, I'd like to talk about him yeah, uh, I don't yeah, think there's enough fine. podcasts about Mangold but, <laughs> yeah. uh, Paul Thomas Anderson who oh, I mean he's got to be thrown in there yeah. uh, Andrea Arnold good choice yeah I I'd like, I'd like her a lot especially Fish Tank that's mm. like up there as like one of my favourites yeah um, I, I watched one of her short films recently it was brilliant it's on yeah. movie oh Wasp is our movie? Yeah, yeah, Lovely. it is. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's uh, won uh, the Oscar for Best Short Film, didn't it? Yeah. And it had Danny right. Dyer in it. So Danny Dyer is sort of Oscar worthy. <laughs> Danny Dyer has been in an Oscar yeah. nominated, nominated movie. There we go. Um, and finally, uh, Alfonso Cuaron. Yeah. Who, Solid. I mean, yeah, he's great. I think he's brilliant. Like, even his lesser known movies, like, quite like The Little Princess, actually. Okay, I've seen, seen that. So. It's, it's good. Um, yeah, just just like I mean, my one of my four personal favorite directors, Sans Boyle, who I think will be a bit of an obvious choice for me, and I've talked about him to to death already. So yeah, no, still want to do enough. the sun. I, I, yeah, I admire your restraint. Uh, the Go four I picked were Kyoshi Kurosawa, nice. uh, Celine Siama. Yeah, uh, I did Google the pronunciation. Of that yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike Lee and David Cronenberg. Oh, Cronenberg. Okay. So yeah, Lovely. I felt like I think we've done quite well that we've picked a nice, in, you know, interesting broad range of filmmakers, and we'll be looking forward to see what you guys pick as well. Yes, uh, yeah. I'll put that poll out relatively soon because even if we don't do another director deep dive for a while, it'd be good to have it. Yeah, you know, in the works so we could go away and watch the films. Um, yeah, yeah, perfect. And do the research. Lovely. Uh, next week, I think next week, <laughs> the typical Cineboys. Uh, <laughs> organizational skills uh, i believe next week we're gonna have a, a guest lovely okay uh lovely lovely jordana a friend of mine uh who i've been wanting to get on for quite a while she wants to do a discussion around anime cinema brilliant anime, okay sorry, around anime films sorry yeah real uh, real blind spot for me um so i'll be taking i'll be watching as many of them as i can mm-hmm. uh but it, yeah i'll be very much learning as opposed to commenting i think with, oh, with well, next week brilliant. which is yeah. good I'm, I'm looking forward to it there's an area i was exposed to in my teen years because i had a friend who was really into it mm. um 
and I was sort of lukewarm to some of it, but I think that obviously it's like anything. There's really good. Mm. There's really good examples uh, in in that medium in that genre. And yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully we get to talk about those because lovely, they're excellent. And I'm looking forward to what you think about them. Actually, cool. In All the right. interim, yeah. In the meantime, uh, have a lovely week, and we'll catch you in the next episode. See you later. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.